Good morning. Well, it's been a really special morning already today. Uh, we love having Nathan and Catherine and Essie as part of our congregation. And watching Nathan get to baptize her was so exciting. Of course, they've got another uh, new arrival coming soon, and we're excited for them about that. So it's been a great day, and it's great to be part of a family of God and see good things happen. We rejoice with each other. We weep with each other. That's the way it should be. We're in Psalm 59 today. I just need to make a couple of quick announcements before we get into the Word. First of all, if, uh, if you're not aware, we're a part of a ministry called Family Promise, uh, where people, families in transition from homelessness to wholeness to having a, a place to stay, they stay with us and with the, basically with a collection of other churches. We house them uh, in our facilities for a week at a time, then they move to the next place and the next place and so on. Meanwhile, they're getting their feet under them, getting established. We're part of that ministry, and it's been great. We've been part of it for many years. We've been able to help several families. This week, we're hosting some families, and we need people to help us out with overnight stays. All that entails basically is you stay here from 8 at night until 7 in the morning. It's basically a sleepover. You don't have to teach a Bible study. You don't have to cook food. You just have to be there. We just need somebody on site. So uh, Tina Scott is in charge of that ministry here. If you would be able to help her for one or more nights, we actually need three nights covered. She's sitting right here on the second row. Come talk to her. Um, if you don't, can't find Tina, come talk to me. So um, also every week, I don't know if you're aware of this, but every week I write an article in the bulletin. Um, if you're not aware, pretend you are aware and make me feel good. Okay, so the purpose of that is not to show off my sick writing skills. It is because I want, and we want as a congregation, we want as, as your staff ministers, we want us to be praying in the same direction. In, whenever you pray, it's powerful, but when God's people pray together, there's a special power there. And so every week I give you a prayer challenge to pray about. I hope you'll take that home every week and stick it in your Bible or, or in your car or on your mirror or somewhere where you can see it so you can remember to pray together. This week it's especially important because we're praying for peace, we're praying for uh, good relationships and unity within the family of God, which is something God holds very precious. And right now that's something I think we have here at First Baptist, but the enemy would love to destroy it. So please join me in praying about that this week. All right, advertisement's over. Psalm 59, we're continuing our series on the life of David, the king of Israel. Um, right now, we are, we're just after the battle of, between David and Goliath in, in the Valley of Ella. Great, great story. I hope you enjoyed it last week. If you didn't, you can find it online. Um, but today, it's going to start getting challenging, all right? So if you don't like being challenged, you came on the wrong Sunday. We're talking about how to handle an enemy. Now, years ago, I began my preaching career, you might say, my ministry as a full-time senior pastor. And oddly enough, ironically, it was in the little church that raised me. I grew up in this church. My mom grew up in this church. Her parents were part of that church all their, all their married lives. Um, so we had deep roots there. I was baptized there. I was ordained there. And then they called me to be the pastor. And this church was so small. Let me tell you how small it was. They had two adult Sunday school classes. That's it. There was a men's class and a women's class. The men's class met in the sanctuary. So if you got there early for worship, you were part of the men's Sunday school class. Didn't matter what gender you were or what age. Um, and, and so when I came along, I said, well, we need something. We need something a little extra. And the church agreed. So we started a, a young adult Sunday school class. And at the beginning, I taught it. I later turned it over to someone else. But that's how I met a guy who we'll call John. 
John's mom went to our church, and John attended one day with her, and I think he was just astonished to see that there was a preacher who was younger than he was, because I was 26 at the time. Can you imagine a 26-year-old being a pastor? But I was. And I think the novelty of having a young preacher like that made him say, I'll give this a shot. He started coming, and he started attending our young adult Sunday school class. Now, John was rough around the edges. He'd, been, he'd gone to church when he was a kid, but it didn't really take. And so, because John wasn't really churched, he didn't know the way we do things in churches. You know, he didn't know that you're actually supposed to act like yourself, right? You're not supposed to pretend to be more righteous than you are. My tongue is in my cheek right now. I hope you all understand. And so John would just say whatever was on his mind. John would just tell us what he was thinking and how things really were for her, which made, for him, which made for some interesting moments. Like this one day when we were in the middle of Bible study, I don't even remember what passage we were studying, and John suddenly spoke up about his ex-wife. You see, John and his wife had been divorced for about a year now. They had an adorable little six-year-old girl. And they were engaged in a bitter custody battle, so bitter that the wife had made these terrible accusations against John to give her leverage in this battle. And so he he started talking about this woman and how much he hated her. And he said the following statement. This is close to an exact quote. He said, here's how much I hate my ex-wife. If I was driving down the street and I saw her crossing the street, I'd gun the engine and run her right over. And he said, "I, I, I honestly dream about doing that someday. Now, let me just tell you, they did not teach me about that in Southwestern Seminary. I, I, did, I did not have training for that moment. And so I didn't know what to say. And that puts a whole different light on your Bible study. But John was just expressing what all of us have experienced to one extent or another. Now, maybe, and hopefully you've never actually wanted to kill anyone, but I guarantee for every single one of you, there's been at least one person and probably multiple people who, who were in your life at a period of time, and if suddenly you found out they were being transferred to Alaska, you would praise God. If they were suddenly gone, if they moved, if you never saw them again, it would be a huge load off your shoulders. And I'm not kidding. Some of you are going through this right now. I don't know who you are. I don't know which ones are, but in a room this size, I guarantee there are people right now who have, who are being tormented terribly by a certain person. And and it could be, it could be your boss that just makes every workday a living hell. It could be the bully from when you were a kid and has somehow resurfaced in your life. Or maybe the abuser who still haunts you even though they're not around you today. It could be the ex who walked out on you and, and made you feel worthless. It could be a gossipy neighbor who is making your life miserable by ruining your reputation. A friend who stabbed you in the back, so-called friend. All of us have these people. These people who who inhabit our nightmares, they make our stomach churn whenever we think of them. If we see their face or someone just mentions their name to you, it just, it kind of ruins your day a little bit. You were in a good mood until that name came up or until you saw them walk into a room. You feel like they're an emissary sent straight from hell to make your life miserable. And in a sense, they are. So what do you do with them? What are we to do about this? I could go on and on about this, but all of you know what I'm talking about. And like I said, some of you are dealing with it right now. See, this week, this year, we're challenging all of us, all of our members, including me, to go all in for Jesus, to give ourselves more fully to Christ than we ever have before. And so we've given you four specific challenges. Read through the Bible. 
the whole Bible this year. Uh, pray for the lost. And we've given you a method to do that so you can cover all the relationships in your life in prayer, uh, to engage in mission work in a hands-on way, not just to give to missions, not just to pray about missions, but to actually serve outside the walls of this church in some way in the name of Christ and to, in- and to increase your generosity in some way, to, to give more because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you haven't started doing one of those four challenges or any of those four challenges, it's not too late to start because anytime you give yourself more fully to the Lord, it's going to be a blessing to you. But let me just say, our goal is not to produce people who do those four things. Those are, those are uh, spiritual disciplines that are good for you, but they're not the end in themselves. Our goal is that we would become people who look increasingly like Jesus and we make others who look increasingly like Jesus. That's the goal. And so if we look increasingly like Jesus, increasingly like Jesus, that's going to change the way we do a lot of things, including the way we relate to our enemies. And so that's why we're looking at Psalm 59. As we continue in the story of the life of David, instead of covering this part of his story in the narrative in 1 Samuel, we're going to look at a psalm he wrote during a period of his life when he was with an enemy. And let me tell you guys... David's enemy was worse than any enemy you and I have ever dealt with because not only did he hate David, he actually literally wanted to kill David. And not only that, he had the power to do so because he was the king of the nation of Israel. He had the entire army at his disposal and nobody in the criminal justice system was going to stop him. And David comes back from, uh, from defeating Goliath. He's a national hero. They're singing songs about him. Immediately, he's become the closest friend in the world to Saul's son, Jonathan. Saul makes him the leader of his army, right? David, this boy, goes out to lead the army of Israel and wins battle after battle. This should be the best time of his life. But instead, Saul hates him and wants to kill him. And because of that, David loses his best friend. He loses his security. He loses his, the best years of his life. This starts when David's a teenager. It doesn't end until he's 30. So if you're in the midst of a time right now where there's an enemy who's crushing you, who's making your life miserable, and you're like, God, when is this going to end? Just keep in mind, it went on for David for over a decade. And in the midst of this time, David writes Psalm 59. The rabbis tell us, the tradition says that David wrote this when he was holed up in his house, knowing there were assassins outside the doors waiting to kill him. And he wrote this as a prayer. Now keep in mind, this is a worship song. This is something the Israelites sang for years to come in worship. Which just goes to show you that Israelites understood better than we do that life is messy. It's not all tied up in a neat little bow. So listen to the words that David writes. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me against those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. 
Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O oh Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them until they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. So what we see in this psalm are are three ways we can deal with our enemies. And, And let me just run through them quickly and then we'll talk about them in detail. Be blameless, give them over to God, and rejoice in the Lord. So what does that look like? Be blameless. David in verses 3 and 4 says, Lord, they behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Now we read that and immediately we think to ourselves, could that really be true? David is saying to God, Lord, I have no fault in this. He is chasing me. He is hating me for no reason. So vindicate me. And you and I say, can that ever really be totally true? Because we've witnessed conflicts. We've seen friends. We've seen spouses. We've seen parents and children. We've seen coworkers go at it, neighbors. And when we look objectively, we can always see two sides, can't we? We can see, okay, he did and said this, but she did and said this, and, and things would have been better if neither of them or if just one of them would have acted differently. So can that possibly tr- be true that David is completely blameless and faultless in this, in this conflict? Well, let's look at the biblical record. The Bible says in 1 Samuel that when David got back from killing Goliath, they were singing the song about him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And that made Saul angry. Because Saul, you see, he knew that he had departed from God. He knew he wasn't walking God's path anymore, so he didn't have God's power on his side anymore. And so he knew things were starting to go south for him. But David was the golden boy. David was everyone's favorite hero. And so he became very suspicious, very paranoid toward David. And David had already had a job to play the harp in Saul's presence. Whenever the king was angry or in a bad mood, he would play that music and and it would help. It would soothe his savage soul in some way. And David was playing the harp one day, as was his job, when suddenly he hears a, a a whooshing sound and then a thunk right beside his head as a spear embeds itself in the wall not six inches from his head. And that's when you know you're in a toxic work environment, when your boss tries to impale you on the end of a spear. I mean, if you're wondering, that's one sign. Now, David tries his best. He tries to make things work, even though he knows that Saul hates him. He continues to be loyal. He continues to serve. Saul tries to convince him to become the king's son-in-law. Here's my daughter. Don't you want to marry her? And David's answer is, well, I'm not worthy. Who am I that I would be the son-in-law of the king, even though he deserves it after killing Goliath? That just makes Saul angrier. Uh, You hate to see righteousness in someone that you hate. So Saul then manipulates 
issues to, to cause David to think, well, I need to marry this daughter. Now, can you imagine being Saul's daughter and having your dad say, hey, honey, why don't you marry my worst enemy because you'll really bring him down. And yet David is, is drawn into this marriage to Saul's daughter. Her name is Michael. When Saul finds out that Michael actually loves David, he's even more paranoid. Now his son and his daughter and all the people of Israel are against him. David eventually has to flee. Through all of this, the Bible tells us, David never once speaks about Saul badly, never once slanders him, never once campaigns against him behind his back or tries to manipulate things so that Saul will, will, will topple. David is completely loyal. He is completely blameless. When he writes this in Psalm 59, he is telling the truth. God would not have allowed it to come into his word if it wasn't true. So the question you need to ask yourself when you're in conflict with someone, when you have an enemy is, Lord, am I truly blameless? Because we think of ourselves that way. We tell ourselves the story that we're the innocent victim, but I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've ever been an innocent victim. I, I don't think that's ever really happened. And it probably hasn't happened for you either. You may not have started the fight, but you got your punches in. You may not have, have started this disagreement, but you've struck back. You've poured fuel on the fire. So the first step is, Lord, show me. Show me where I have contributed to this. Show me where I am at fault. Lord, show me what I need to do to make things right. One of my favorite scriptures is Romans 12, 18, because it's just so practical. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And I love how that's written, because if possible, that indicates sometimes it's not possible, and that's true. There are times when you have done everything you can. You've done everything you can to make things right with this person who hates you, and they still go on hating you. David is proof of that. Saul hated David until the day he died. And if you're in that position where you can honestly stand before the Lord and say, Lord, like David, my hands are clean in this. I have Whatever I've done to this person, I've confessed it, I've made it right, but they still hate me, there's nothing more I can do, that's a good place to be. But have you taken that step? You see, my opinion, because I know myself and because I know human nature, is that for most of us, when we have an enemy, we know there are certain things we could do or certain things we could say, certain steps we could take to make things better. We know there is something we could do to bring about, at least advance the cause of reconciliation, but we won't do it because our pride gets in the way. Because I didn't start this, why should I take the first step? I, I, didn't, I didn't hurt him like he hurt me, so why should I apologize first? We're waiting for them to humble themselves first. And guys, i got to tell you this because I love you. And you're not going to like this, but i got to tell you. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. That means that if you know what you should do to make things right with someone else and you don't do it, it's no different than if you cheated on your spouse. Your every bit is out of the will of God as, as if you spit in the face of Christ himself. Do what you're called to do, and you will not regret it, because a life of peace with all people is the way God wants us to live, if possible, as far as it depends on you. Be blameless. Secondly, give them over to God. Okay, this part is not exactly easy, but it's a little bit easier, because look at verses 12 and 13. 
for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips. Let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them until they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. And so right now, if you're engaged in, in a conflict with someone who's really mean and, and really done awful things to you, you like the sound of that because you're like, yeah, I can pray that way. Yeah, I can pray for God to blot them out, to, to destroy them, to consume them in wrath. And for others of you, you sit there thinking, well, why is that in the Bible? That doesn't sound very Christian. Well, let me give you three reasons why I think God put it in His Word. Number one, because God is a God of justice. He's a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. No sin goes unpunished. Any sin that we're not willing to accept the grace of God to pay for, we pay for ourselves. God makes sure there is justice. Number two, Saul needed to be brought to the point of repentance. Remember, the verse right before this, David says, don't kill them, Lord, because I want the world to see. And then he says, consume them so that they may know that there's a God. He's trying to bring them to repentance. Repentance is what we all need when we're in the wrong. And let's face it, we're too stubborn. We will not repent until we've experienced some measure of pain, some measure of the fruits of our disobedience. And that's what David is praying for here. But third, David, by praying this way, is able to truly give Saul over to God for justice. He's able to say, okay, Lord, it's in your hands. I have shared with you exactly how I feel. This is the funny thing is, when we pretend, I, I joked a while ago about how when we come to church, we pretend to be more righteous than we are. You ever find yourself pretending to be more righteous in prayer than you usually are? You think, okay, well, this is the kind of prayer God wants to hear from me. But God knows what you're thinking. He's know what, he knows what you're feeling. Why not just share it? Goodness, if you've been reading through the Bible, you've, you've been reading through the Psalms, you see how honest they are? The psalmist, David and the other psalmists, say some incredibly raw and honest things to God. And that's what David says here. Lord, I really wish you would take these people out. I'm laying this before you. And that way David could walk away and say, it's in the hands of God. He's going to bring me justice. I don't have to do it myself. You know, Jesus came along. Don't. This is why you always interpret Scripture by Scripture. Jesus came along and he took Psalm 59 and he took it further. No, don't just... Hand them over to God, but actually, you need to love them. You need to pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. You get to the point where you begin to treat them with kindness, even though your heart doesn't want to, even though you don't feel like being kind to them, you begin to treat them the way you wish they'd treat you. That's what we're called to do as God's people. That's, that is obedience to the Heavenly Father. And how do you know you've truly given them over to God? Well, because... When you have an opportunity to strike back in fear and in anger, you don't. When you have an opportunity to lash out at them, you hold back. And that's what David did. In 1 Samuel 24, it says that David and his men one day were hiding in a cave because they knew Saul and his army were in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden, they heard a sound outside of, of a mighty army of the marching and, and all, the, all the tumult of all those people. And they see a man walk into the cave. And guess who it is? It's Saul himself. They're shrouded in darkness. They know Saul can't see them. And then Saul proceeds to, and here's what the original Hebrew says in 1 Samuel 24. It says, Saul went into the cave to cover his feet, which we think is a euphemism for using the bathroom. Because when you, you do that, you have to drop certain things that cover your feet, right? 
I'm sorry, that's really crude, but it's in the Bible. So, hey, I got to get out of jail free card, right? So Saul is in this extremely vulnerable position. David is just a few feet away in the darkness, sword in hand. All he has to do is reach out that sword and his problems are over, but he chooses not to. In, Saul, in 1 Samuel 26, there's a second moment where David and one of his best soldiers, they sneak into the army, into the camp of the Israelites while they're all asleep. And they walk right into the center of the camp. Apparently, the sentry has fallen asleep too. And they find Saul laying flat on his back, snoring away, his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. And all David's got to do is pick up that spear and put it right back down again. And he's a free man. But he chooses to walk away. And there will come times when you and I have an opportunity to talk bad about our enemy or to, to rally people around us. People will even come up to you and try to, try to encourage you. Hey, what, what do you think of that person? Hey, let's talk about how mean they've been to you. And you know that you've given them over to the Lord when you can honestly say, you know, that wouldn't do any good. I, I don't have anything bad to say about them. I've turned them over to God and I want nothing but good for them. That's where we should aim to get to. And you may say that's impossible. Well, let me tell you something. That day when John spoke about running over his ex-wife in my Sunday school class, and I'm sitting there fumbling for words, there was a woman in the class who spoke up. And if you would have told me before that day that she was going to speak up, I would have said, no, anybody but her. Because this was a woman who, very good-hearted, I, I, I loved her being in the class, but she knew even less about the Bible than John. Now, let me tell you, two weeks before, she had boldly proclaimed before us that her favorite verse in the whole Bible is, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, okay? That can't be your favorite Bible verse when it's not even in the Bible. So this woman speaks up, and I know inwardly I'm thinking, oh no, Lord, no, don't make it go from bad to worse. But God spoke a prophetic word through this woman that was so perfect. And she said something like this, John, you need to give this woman over to the Lord because all this hate is just eating you up inside. You give her over to the Lord, and I promise you, what he'll do to her is way better than anything you could do. And John got this incredibly peaceful look on his face. And he never talked bad about his ex-wife around us again. Give them over. Give them over to the Lord. He knows what needs to happen. And then third, and finally, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. See, an enemy, whether natural or supernatural, an enemy can never do anything to a child of God, can never defeat a child of God unless one of two things happens. One is unless you hate them back, and that's what we just talked about. Give all that over to God. Or unless you take your eyes off of God. And that happens way too often, doesn't it? Because instead of keeping our eyes on the, on the Father, instead of keeping our eyes on our Savior, we just want to rehearse over and over again what that person has done to us how mean that person is, how awful they are, and, and what we'd love to say to them. Do you ever have those imaginary conversations where you win the argument every single time? Man, that feels good, doesn't it? Or to just sit and kind of rehearse all the, all the evil they're guilty of. You know that, that grudges and self-pity have this in common. They're both like a hot tub. It's hard to get out of those once you're in them. Oh, this feels so good. But I want you to notice the way David ends his prayer, verses 16 and 17. 
But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. What is David doing there? He's saying, my enemy can't defeat me. Because I have a God who is unchanging. And he's my cause of celebration. And I rejoice in him. You know how powerful worship is? Let me tell you how powerful worship is. Back in the 60s, some of y'all are old enough to remember, many of you are not. Back in the middle middle 60s, this part of the world was going through the, the process of integrating the public schools. And I don't know what it was like here in Montgomery County. Um, in my hometown, in my area, Lavaca County, where I grew up, uh, this happened uh, uh, five or six years before I was born. My parents were in high school at the time. They've told me about it. And what they said was, it was pretty peaceful. Yeah, it happened about 10 years after the Supreme Court said it should have happened, and that's not something to be proud of. But there was no big, uh, big anger or rioting or anything like that. It just, they showed up one day at school, and suddenly there were kids that looked completely different there. But that wasn't the case across a lot of the South, was it? There were plenty of places where it was anything but peaceful. And if you didn't live through that time and experience it in real time, you've seen the movies, you've seen the videos. As college students, high school students, even little elementary school students are having to be escorted by armed guards, state troopers, national guardsmen, into their schools, as people, adult people, line up along the sidewalks and scream profanities at them and hateful language at them. Saddest thing of all, a lot of those people, I bet, would have called themselves Christians. And during those days, there was a a psychologist at Harvard named Robert Coles who was watching this on the news, and he was astonished by the strength of these children, especially the little ones, the elementary kids. He thought to himself, man, I, when I was that age, I couldn't have done that. Even No matter how many armed guards you had around me, if all these people are screaming hate at me, I, I, would, have, I would have turned and run. I would have cried. And they're just walking in with these stoic looks on their faces, courageous as can be. How can that be? And so he actually left Boston and came south and began to interview these kids. And he wrote a book about it. And, and here's one of the stories. There was an eight-year-old little girl in North Carolina. And, and this is the story she told. And here I quote. She said, one day, I was walking into school, and those people were screaming at me. And then I saw God smiling, and I smiled. And this woman was standing by the front door, and she said, hey, you little, and you can fill in the word she used there. Hey, you little, what are you smiling at? And I said, at God. And then she looked up at the sky, and then she looked back at me, and she didn't call me names anymore. That is the power of worship. When you know who's really in charge, you give yourself fully to him. There's only so much an enemy can do to you. Call me names? Okay. But he knows that's not who I am. And that's what really matters. And that's why if you're part of our worship team here, or if you sing in the choir, you understand what you're doing is not just singing songs. You're not performing. You're actually preparing us for a week of battle. You're getting us ready. You're filling our hearts with songs that we're going to be able to sing to ourselves all throughout the week to remind us of what's really true, of what really matters. You rejoice in the Lord, and there's only so much your enemy can do to you. 
Now, let me just say this, and then I'm done. Every, every week so far, I've said the same thing, and I'm going to say it again. David is a great story. His story is wonderful and inspiring, but he's not your moral example. Now, he wrote Psalm 59, and God put it in his word, and it's beautiful. But when you study the life of David, you find out that even David didn't fully live up to Psalm 59. Because there came days. We're going, to be, we're going to be in this part of David's life for the next three weeks looking at this period when he's being chased by Saul and his life is in danger. And we're going to see him at times give in to despair and just throw up his hands and say, he might as well catch me and kill me because I give up. There are times when he gets angry and his anger gets the best of him. There are times when he makes terrible decisions. David's not your perfect moral example. Don't say to yourself, all I need to do is be like David. Because even David didn't live up to his own words. Now your hope, our hope, is in the one who is greater than David. Our hope is the one who, when his enemies called him terrible names and falsely accused him, responded with love. When they laid hands on him and sent him to his death after a ridiculous travesty of a trial, he didn't fight back. When they mocked him as he was dying, he prayed for their salvation. And best of all, He's the one who, when we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us. See, David, David refused to strike back at his enemy. Jesus died for his enemies. Nobody does that. Only Jesus. And therefore, when you have an enemy, your only hope, your best hope, in fact, the hope that will not fail you is to say, Lord, I need you. I need your strength. I need your grace. I need your power. I need your love. Show me how to treat this person. Show me how to carry on when it looks like they're winning. Show me how to overcome the despair and the anger and the grief and the guilt that I feel. Because you are greater than all these things. He is the one. By his power, there's not an enemy on earth or anywhere else that can defeat us.